This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Look who else is up and working on New Year's Day. It's our Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. So Vaughn, not a big New Year's Eve person? Not a big New Year's Eve person, Simi. Most overrated holiday of the year. Yes, Vaughn. There you go. Oh, crank. Yes. Okay. I'm no, I agree. I sit here in Victoria <laughs> in the basement and I grumble, right? So, <laughs> uh, but uh, so, anyway, happy New Year, Simi. Happy New Year and, to you. And happy election year because that's what we're headed into. And I do BC politics. And you and I are going to be busy talking about stuff up until election day, which Premier has told us many times. That's right. It's October the 19th, so I'm going to take him at his word and say that's when we're going to be voting. Only ten and a half months to go. Now, I was surprised to see that on a Friday before New Year's, you know, we got this kind of quite unexpected decision from the B.C. Supreme Court that really kind of upended some things. Yeah, it's a major decision by BC Supreme Court because it impacts something that the EB government tried to do this fall. So uh, hearing a lot of concerns from police and from mayors and communities and the public about open drug use in BC, the government brought in a law, passed it in October, that restricts open drug reuse in public spaces in general. That's what it does. Uh, It was immediately challenged in court. And I think, you know, if you go back to the court challenge, uh, real surprise that the courts would have taken this on. The law wasn't proclaimed into law. There were no regulations. The whole thing seemed premature. But on Friday, the Chief Justice of BC Supreme Court, Christopher Hinkson, issued a temporary injunction against implementation of the law. So that takes effect up to March 31st, so essentially three months from now. It was so sudden and so surprising, there were a lot of misinterpretations about it, understandable misinterpretations about what it does. For instance, the common comment, okay, it effectively legalizes drug use in parks and school grounds, No, it doesn't, because those are covered by pre-existing federal legislation. They were not the subject of the court action, so they're still covered by the existing federal law. What's been suspended is the provincial law, Simi, and the provincial law hasn't been, was passed. It hasn't been proclaimed into law because the province hasn't ready to do that and they haven't produced the regulation. So... It's in abeyance, I guess. It's been put on hold. It has certainly sent the EB government back to the drawing board to go, what does this court decision mean? How do we deal with it? And here's their first challenge for 2024. Okay, but you make a very, very important point here because we had a lot of municipal politicians getting very upset over the weekend. But the point is, nothing has really changed as of yet. Nothing as of yet, 
But again, and I've now gone back and read the judgment in this case twice, posted online on the BC Supreme Court site. It's not long. Uh, it's written in relatively plain language for a court judgment. And if you read through it and you see why the judge thought it was necessary to jump in right away, some would say prematurely, you look at what concerned him, it's going to be very tough to reconcile the law as it's written, its regulations, which we haven't seen, with the judge's concern, because there are major, major concerns, the judge says. Uh, first of all, he's concerned that the effect of the law by essentially outlawing drug taking or restricting drug taking in public spaces, um, such and such a distance from a playground, such and such a distance from a park, doorways, other public spaces, that he's concerned, the judge is concerned that the effect of that will be to drive drug use underground and put lives at risk because if drug takers uh, take drugs in isolation, there's not just the issue of stigmatizing them, but there's also the issue of if they have an overdose, there's nobody there to look after them. So that's the first concern. His second concern is also a challenge to the provincial government. The judge says, yes, we have, um, I think the number is 47 uh, safe injection sites in BC. They're mostly in cities. Only some of them are available uh, around the clock and staffed. And he says the... If, if users don't have safe supply places, safe injection sites to take their drugs, again, their lives are at risk. Many of them don't have uh, private spaces of their own. They don't have a place to go. And now you're saying the police are going to harass them if they try to take drugs in public spaces. So again, the judges. The judge, this isn't a final decision by any means, Simi, but if you read through that, you go, it's going to be a real challenge for the New Democrats to address this because essentially the judge's ruling hits at two of the fundamentals of the current situation, driving people underground to take drugs, lack of safe spaces for them to take drugs in isolation publicly. Right. All right, we're talking with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning about the surprise decision by the BC Supreme Court that really calls into question now what is going to happen with these spaces where public spaces where you're not supposed to be consuming any drugs. And so there was a lot of political reaction to this as well, Vaughn. Yeah, there's been a lot of reaction and it's still coming in because, you know, it was over the, the New Year's weekend. Uh, the decision came down on Friday. So let's see. Uh, the mayors of the province so far, the ones we've heard from, I would say, collectively are appalled. Uh, Mayor of Vancouver said, oh, he expects the courts, but he wishes they would revisit this thing. Uh, Brad West, uh, the usually outspoken Port Coquitlam mayor, I think, spoke for a lot of members of the public, sort of shocked and appalled at this. Mayor of Victoria, who uh, is on the left, said she still supports the provincial legislation on this and hopes that it can survive. So that's the mayors, and I think the mayors speak for the public. In fact, the thing I would say to the people out there celebrating this decision, um, 
The reason the provincial government enacted this, these restrictions on open drug use was to shore up support for decriminalization. Public support for decriminalization has been unraveling because of the chaos it has led to in public spaces. It's all very well to say you want more safe injection sites uh, from some of the coverage. Simi, you don't want to live next to one of those, right? And the same with other open drug use. So, you know, I, I think the mayors are speaking for the public when they say this is, you know, this is, they hope this decision is reversed. I think it is going to, if this decision survives and stands and you can't restrict open drug use in public spaces, that's going to undermine public support for the experiment in decriminalization. And I think, Simi, that was the provincial government reaction. You said surprise. I think that's right. The EB government went into court arguing, uh, defending its law, arguing an injunction would be premature. I think they expected to win the case. I think they were shocked that they didn't. And they're now trying to figure out how do they proceed. They could enact the law, proclaim it into law, proclaim the regulations and try to defend them in front of the judge because the case would resume after the injunction. Uh, they could try to elevate it to a higher court as a court challenge. But I think really um, this is a government that did this, Simi, because they recognize public support for decriminalization is unraveling and they see this decision as likely to make it worse. Well, yeah, and you're right about that because there were a lot of people on social media talking about this saying, you know, advocating that, oh, yeah, this is a great decision. But that doesn't mean that they're going to get what they want either. No, it doesn't. So uh, the BC United opposition, uh, it's sort of an easy response, I would say. Their response was, uh, look, uh, provincial government rushed into this. Uh, they didn't do a good enough job defending their decision. Uh, the legislation is flawed. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yes, I guess you could say that. But I think, as I said, uh, the government's intentions were clear here. Uh, yes, it took them a while to implement it. They haven't done it yet fully. But really, this is an out-of-the-blue court decision, uh, an injunction that was granted that I think surprised many. The really interesting political response was from BC Conservative leader John Rustad. The people who brought this case, the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, they have 76 members in British Columbia. They went into court arguing, in effect, a right to take drugs, uh, a right to uh, not be restricted in where you do that. The constitutional issue wasn't resolved. The judge said he didn't need to do that in order to grant an injunction. John Rustad comes out and says, if I become premier, I'm going to use the override clause in the Constitution to preserve this legislation. He says you've got no right to walk down the street chug-a-lugging a, a six-pack of beer, and you've got no right to take drugs anywhere in public spaces in BC. So that is going to be a political battle line, I think, if this thing sustains through the air. We don't know if it will. And Simi, once again, you go, whatever you think of John Rustad, he jumps on issues quickly, and I think he will have some public support for what he said. It's an interesting comparison, though, between what he said versus what Kevin Falcon said, right? Like, which one will resonate more with the public? 
Well, the Falcon position is more nuanced. It's more the kind of statement you get from an opposition party, which is faulting the government for its legislation exactly, and its approach yeah. and saying you screwed up. That's a kind of a traditional political debate. Rustad takes it to a new level. And, you know, there's been long been a kind of, you know, the, the, the third rail argument, you step on the electric rail and nobody wants to do that. There's been an argument in Canada, you don't use the notwithstanding clause. You don't use the override clause in the Constitution. We're starting to see that argument unravel. You've seen the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe did it, and an education case. And the, the public is going, hey, the clause is there. Uh, not everybody, obviously. The clause is there to be used. Why don't you use it? And uh, look, uh, I think Rusted uh, will get some support and attention for this. Uh, people are going to say, uh, well, maybe this is a case where you'd use it. Now, premature. We haven't gone through the whole process. It's a temporary injunction. It may end up in a formal court case. There's all kinds of things can happen. But it sets the tone for an election year, Simi, where I think we're going to be looking at how far can John Rustad take this uh, populist approach to the political debate against the more traditional approach of BC United. Okay, so what is the next step here? What happens now? Uh, the next step is to hear from the provincial government on what it's going to do. It could, I think, the next thing they're most likely to do is to proclaim the legislation along with the regulations and draft the regulations in a way that tries to address some of the concerns of the judge. They could then go back in front of the same judge later this year and say, we heard you, Your Honor. Uh, we understand your concerns. Here's how we've addressed them. We think our law should survive the challenges because of this, and they might win that. They could hope to win it, and if they do win it, then the case goes away for a while. Hmm. Uh, if they lose that, then we're into some uncharted territory, Simi. The case could end up going to the highest court in the land, and that could play out over a period of years, not weeks and months. Oh, boy. All right, Vaughn, thank you for that. Happy New Year. Bye-bye, Simi. Happy New Year. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, when we look back on 2023, I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of what we talked about had to do with AI, artificial intelligence. How did the evolution of AI contribute to all the scientific achievements that we heard about over the past year? Well, our producer, Bianca Rego, decided to find out. Over the past year, there have been a lot of talks and speculation about whether machines could end up surpassing human intelligence sooner than we expected. This, of course, has led people to worry about whether the human brain will be able to keep up with the rapid advancements of this technology. But there are some who believe that humans and machines don't necessarily have to compete head-to-head. -head. Neuroscientists and psychologists have harnessed the possibilities of AI to find ways this technology can be used to help us better understand the human mind. Here to tell us more about this is Gary Sticks, a senior editor of Neuroscience and Psychology at Scientific American. Thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thanks for the invite for coming on. So you've written a lot about the brain sciences and how it intersects with AI. You've even narrowed down a list of the top five standout mind and brain stories of 2023. So 
Of the five, you spoke about how AI drives a machine that can decode the contents of your brain. Can you tell me more about that? So brain imaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging, looks at a person's brain and it looks at the words in a person's head and then it creates a kind of dictionary that it's able to then figure out what is going on while a person listens to a story. And so it basically is decoding in a very rough sense the content of what a person is hearing and processing in their mind. So let's say they're reading a book and they come across a word. Would that word then be generated in their brain, which AI would then decode or see, for lack of a better word? So what the person was reading might be able to be decoded by the machine and the machine would be able to make a guess about what the person was reading. And it would be somewhat imprecise. It wouldn't be an exact word-by-word account, but it would be able to get the gist of what the person was reading. That's fascinating and terrifying, but just fascinating and terrifying because it's the unknown, and we don't know how far it's going to advance. Do you think that this will evolve into something bigger? It's possible. Keep in mind that the brain is the most complicated machine that anybody knows of. Who knows? There may be aliens in in another galaxy that are, are able to surpass this, but there is nothing more complex than the human brain. And so it's possible that we will get to the point where there will be machines that are able to decode our thoughts, but it's still a long, long way to go. The level of performance of the machine is amazing, but it's not something that, as I point out in my story, you could use or Buy on Amazon anytime in the near future. (laughs) When that day comes, boy, will a lot of people be just put on display there. (laughs) So I would also like to address in your article, you talk about will we finally understand consciousness by the year 2048? Can you expand Uh on that? (laughs) So that story actually was about a bet between a neuroscientist and a philosopher that by this year, in fact, we would have a signature of what consciousness is. The neuroscientist, Christoph Koch, who thought that we would, had to acknowledge that we have not reached that goal and then bet with the philosopher David Chalmers, that in 25 years we would. There are multiple theories of how consciousness works, but it's still one of the greatest mysteries in science. If I were to hazard a guess, I would say that if um, Christoph Koch and David Chalmers are still around 25 years from now, Koch is going to lose that bet again. (laughs) Why do you think that? Because the brain is just so complex that it is going to take hundreds of years to understand it at 
a level of profundity that we can come up with a grand theory of consciousness. Along the way, there have been philosophers, analysts, scientists who've said that we may not be smart enough to understand the human brain. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it still remains to be seen, but it is, again, one of the grand challenges of science. That's for sure. Um, Do you think that AI will ever help us understand what the human consciousness is? Considering it's intangible, it's still an elusive thought that no one really seems to understand entirely. So there are 100 trillion connections in the human brain. And if you think of all of the possible interactions, it is beyond mind boggling. (laughs) So the ability to figure out that complexity may be very well helped by uh, AI and powerful computing. What do you expect will come of 2024 in light of these revelations? You know something? Um, It's quite possible that there will be a deflation in the whole perspective on artificial intelligence. And I can cite one specific example to illustrate that. Self-driving cars were thought to be just around the corner. And there have been many periods in which AI has kind of been in decline since the term was first coined in the 1950s. And in fact, 10 years ago, there was what was called an AI winter. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with AI or to have AI on a product. And and that has totally changed. But if you look at self-driving cars, self-driving cars are actually going into a decline uh, in some areas. Not every single example of the companies dealing with this are in decline. But if you look at Tesla having to recall its Mm self-driving car systems, also the accident that the uh, GM company had in San Francisco, there is a a big reticence to use self-driving cars because of the recognition that this technology is just not ready for prime time. Or if it is going to be used, it has to be used in very constrained settings. But, you know, to just have them drive around city streets with all of the unforeseeable possibilities In that sense, humans really still are better in a lot of times. (laughs) But other than that, you know, um, there's a distinct possibility that AI may go through a de-hyping period and the self-driving cars are an example of that. (laughs) A de-hyping period. I love the way you coined that. (laughs) Um, Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can continue this conversation sometime soon. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. That's our producer, Bianca Rego, speaking with Gary Sticks, neuroscience and psychology editor for Scientific American, talking about how AI really revolutionized brain science in 2023. Look forward to talking more about all sorts of great discoveries for 2024. All right. Stay with us. We'll get a check of your traffic and what's going on coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, growing up in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, I tell you, you heard a lot about Evil Knievel. He was 
the man. He was the guy. Everybody knew who Evil Knievel was. What I did not know was that there is a history of him in parts of British Columbia, including in the Kootenays. And we're going to learn all about it today with the help of Greg Nesteroff, who's a Kootenay historian, the co-author of Lost Kootenays, A History and Photographs, and operates the Kootenay Reader, a blog about uh, local history as well. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. What was Evil Knievel doing in the Kootenays? Well, um, I, I should clarify that he wasn't actually in the Kootenays, but he did have a Kootenay connection, and that was playing hockey. Um, a lot of people don't realize that before he became a, a daredevil motorcycle jumper, uh, Evil Knievel was a, a semi-professional hockey player in his hometown of Butte, Montana. And so for a couple of years in the late 1950s, he was the, the playing coach of a team called the Butte Bombers, and they took on... Uh, Various teams, but a couple of them were from the Kootenays, one from Trail and one from Creston. Okay, and so does he have some kind of lasting legacy? What do people remember him for as a hockey player? Well, I I only talked to one fellow who remembered playing against him, and uh, his sort of overriding memory was that he they thought that Evil Knievel was a big show off, (laughs) which which I guess you know fits pretty well with his with his later persona. So uh, they only played you know a few games uh, against uh, Trail and Creston each year. Um, I think there there were uh, two seasons uh, and two games against each of those teams. So they didn't have a lot of opportunity to see him, but he did make a, enough of an impression on him. I think he was one of the, he was certainly one of the better players on, on the Butte Bombers. I haven't compiled the statistics, but uh, he also spent a lot of time in the penalty box. Okay, I understand he also maybe once or twice had a Gordie Howe hat trick. Absolutely, a Gordie Howe hat trick being a goal, an assist, and a fight. And uh, on at least one occasion, I think he scored two goals, had an assist, a fight, and a roughing liner as well. Right, but there, were there some controversies as well? Yeah, there there were a number of uh, of, of sort of bizarre incidents that happened. Uh, the actually when when Trail played in Butte in January of 1959 uh, for a couple of back-to-back games, there were uh, incidents in both games. Uh, in the the uh, coach of the Trail team punched a referee. And in the following game, Evil Knievel punched a referee oh. as well and got a major penalty, although he, he apologized for it afterward. I would hope so there, too. So uh, do, do, do people, not many people remember this? How did you even come across this? Well, a, a few years ago, I was uh, reading a story about Evil Knievel's hockey career in, in the Society for International Hockey Research Journal. And it mentioned that one of the teams that uh, he had played was from Trail. And I thought, okay, that's that's kind of interesting. But I didn't really look into it at the time. But then this past summer, I went to, I visited Butte, Montana for the first time. And uh, in a sports bar there, there's uh, a picture of the team that Evil Knievel coached. And so that kind of rekindled my, my interest in the subject. And it turns out that the, all of the Butte, newspapers have been digitized and are available online. So it wasn't hard to, to look into the story. Okay. I wonder, though, when it comes to Evil Knievel, is it people of a certain age who that immediately evokes something in them? Like, does, do, do younger people even know who Evil Knievel was? That's a good question. I don't know, but you're quite right that he was a real pop culture icon yes. of the 1970s and 80s. And then his star kind of dimmed for a while. Um, well, I mean, you know, he stopped doing the, 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 the daredevil acts that he was famous for, you know, jumping his motorcycle over ridiculous obstacles. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if, if he is as well known today. I mean, he, he's been dead for quite a number of years now. So 
um, might be a, a name that is foreign to, to kids today, but certainly, you know, if you grew up in the 1970s or 80s, I mean, you may have owned a, an evil Knievel action figure or something like that. He was a, a, a pop culture icon, and really, he was a superhero in the sense that, you know, he some of his stunts, he was successful. He would clear whatever obstacle he was jumping over, but a lot of others uh, resulted in spectacular crashes, but just the fact that he survived, you know, says something. He had, you know, he went through life with some ridiculous number of broken bones and injuries, but he always picked himself up and, and went on to the next uh, big stunt. He certainly did. I was, I think the one I was thinking of was when he tried to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace. I think he got pretty yes, severely yes, injured that at that. Was, I, yeah, and I think that was that was kind of what what uh, led him to prominence in the first place. I think that was his first really big major stunt. But he was. Uh, um, you know, he was he was famous in his hometown of, of Butte for a while, and, and when he died, there was an enormous, um, you know, an enormous procession for his for his funeral. So he is really hailed there as uh, one of the favorite sons, and his um, his hockey career, even there, is probably not all that well known. And the fact that you know there is a Kootenai connection to it is even less known. Interesting. Okay, so I guess if you compared him to something today, if you were trying to describe it, you'd say he's like uh, one of these like YouTube, you know, influencers, like somebody who goes viral on YouTube for some of the stunts that they pull. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If YouTube had existed back in the 1970s, uh, Evil Knievel could have made his name that way. I mean, at the time, I think he um, he first came to prominence because the uh, one of his motorcycle jumps appeared on ABC's Wild World of Sports, oh, yeah. but he had to he had to convince them to you know that he was worth airing. But uh, you know, and today with uh, where anybody can be a, a broadcaster or you know make a name for themselves on social media, I'm sure that he would have been one of those guys. Boy, this really took me back down memory lane here. Is there a lot of history? Do you think that it, to uncover in the Kootenays, like stories of this? How do you do it? How do you find them? Well, a lot of them are, are um, from these digitized newspapers, um, which are, you know, gradually being added online more and more. Uh, the, um, the Nelson Daily News, for example, which was a, a major newspaper in, in the B.C. interior for, you know, most of its existence of 100 and 110 years or so, is slowly being added online. And so now you can search for stuff that before it would have been really hard slogging in the library in front of a microfilm reader, possibly going blind, you know, looking for hours for something. But now you can do a keyword search and find something, you know, very, very quickly, which was what happened in in this case. It was actually pretty easy to find everything that I I needed to know or wanted to know about um, Evil Knievel playing against teams and against uh, Trail and Creston. Who knew? It's a treasure trove of info. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us to tell us about it. Oh, you're very welcome, Cindy. That's Greg Nesteroff. Greg is a Kootenai historian, co-author of Lost Kootenai's History in Photographs, and operator of the local history blog, The Kootenai Reader. Great stuff there. Evil Knievel and the Kootenais. Who knew? This is Mornings with Simi. Has this ever happened to you? You're thinking about buying something. You know you shouldn't. You know things are already pretty tight when it comes to money, but then you think, oh, what the heck? In for a penny, in for a pound. How much worse can it be? And then you buy it. I think many of us can actually relate to that. We're going to talk about being able to stop those kinds of behaviors, save yourself some money at the same time. Charlotte Coles joins us now, a financial advice columnist for The Cut. Charlotte, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I think all of us, Charlotte, have done that at some point, maybe even recently. Oh, yes, definitely. I think for me, the first time it really 
I, I noticed it happening to me was uh, several years ago when I was planning my wedding and I found that I was spending so much money, you know, for many people, a, a big life event, they start spending more money than they ever really have before and they get out of their routine. And then suddenly I was like, well, you know, what's one more little thing? Like, why not just buy a new shirt or a new swimsuit or, you know, right. go out to dinner treat myself. <laughs> you're like, why not and get the better flowers? Why not get the better whatever? Oh, exactly. sure. I'm already spending the money. Let's just do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so we do that for everyday things too. Is there, is that like an actual thing? What do you call that? Okay. So there is a, an actual phenomenon that psychologists coined a name for it in the 1980s called the what the hell effect. I and love this. I know it's, I mean, it, it, you know exactly what they're talking about, right? Yes. Um, it means that once you sort of um, slip up or, um, you know, fall short of uh, experience a setback, you then just, instead of being like, oh, and you catch it and get back on the wagon, you just fall off completely. And it was initially found by diet researchers, they found that, you know, People who were trying to follow a strict diet, um, they'd have, you know, um, a milkshake or something, and then they would actually eat more after that. Sure, because at that point, the day is a write-off. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they um, they they found it in relation to um, eating and people who wanted to improve their eating habits, but it has since been applied to all sorts of different setbacks um, from financial to exercise to really any sort of goal setting environment. Um, and there's a psychologist um, named um, Kelly McGonigal who wrote a book called The Willpower Instinct. And she has written a lot about this as well. Um, so there are ways around it. But the first step to understanding it and sort of understanding it in yourself is being aware of how how deeply human it is to do this. Okay, well, that's good to know, right? That everybody does this, but clearly it's also damaging to us in terms of um, not just our health, but when it comes to spending money, because we spend more money than we should. Sure, sure. As soon as you like deviate from your plan, then it's like all hell breaks loose. Okay, so how can we break this cycle? So an important part of understanding the cycle is realizing that once you have sort of gotten into the slippery, you know, you've set one foot on the slippery slope, a lot of people are like, I'm already, I'm already, you know, I've, I've thrown in the towel. And there's a really big difference between spending $50 that you didn't intend to spend and spending $500 that you didn't intend to spend or whatever the difference is. Um, so a little setback is very different from a big setback. So the point, the, the initial step is understanding when it starts to happen and then interrupting the sort of shame cycle that gets kicked off. So one of the reasons that the what the hell effect takes place is that you feel bad for what you've done. And then 
you try to make yourself feel better. And usually the easiest way to make yourself feel better is to just repeat the thing that you did. There's Um, so many damaging behaviors in what you're describing right here. I know, I know. But it's also, you know, it's so human and we all do it and people always feel so bad about it, but it's actually the shame and the feeling bad that makes it worse. So the first thing that you have to do, and I know that this is sounds a little woo-woo and it's easier said than done, but have some self-compassion and to just fully understand that this happens and to not beat yourself up about it. Okay, Secondly, so that's step one. Yes, that's, that's there's got to be more. Which is to just sort of own it and be like, whoops, I messed up. Oh, well. Then the next step is to think about something And I think that this is where a lot of people have trouble. They're like, oh, I really messed up. I need to do, I need to um, sort of punish myself for this. And um, I'm never shopping again. Or, you know, I'm only going to, I'm going to have a no spend day or I won't spend any money for the rest of the week to make up for this. And that's A, unrealistic and B, it it doesn't, it's not like an inviting solution, right? (laughs) Um, You're sort of naturally going to fight against that. So what you actually need is something that you, an attractive alternative. So something that you'll actually want to do. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like when people are like, oh, um, I I ate a cookie, so now I need to go run five miles. You're not going to run five miles. Instead, maybe you just need to recognize that you're going to sit and relax and watch a TV show or you need something inviting that you will actually do instead. So um, so I talked to a couple of money experts about things that they enjoy doing that actually have nothing to do with money that help them sort of break that cycle. And it's stuff like go to bed earlier or go for a walk or do some kind of activity that they enjoy doing. And those are all great substitutions for spending money and um, and pursuing those types of behaviors that um, or or trying to force themselves to cut right. back and restrict because that's usually not an inviting alternative. Right. But people, we are so bad at doing things that we know are good for us, things that we should do versus the things that we think are bad for us that we want to do. Totally, totally. That's why these alternative behaviors need to be things that you'll actually enjoy. Um, like giving yourself permission to do that guilty pleasure, like sit on the couch after you eat that cookie. Totally, totally. It needs to be like, uh, um, a pleasure that, you know, you need to really divorce the guilt from the pleasure and just be like, I am going to do this other thing that feels good, that is less damaging or maybe not really damaging at all. Um, so another example is, um, I found this great consignment store in my neighborhood and I, whenever I clean out my closet or realize that, you know, something, I'm not going to wear something anymore, I bring it there and instead of getting cash for the clothes that I sell there um, or that, you know, that I give to them and they sell, they give me store credit. And that means that when I sort of get that itch to shop, which I think a lot of people can relate to. Instead of just going online and clicking around, I physically go to that store and I have money to spend there and I can kind of browse around. So instead of telling myself, absolutely no, I cannot shop, which I'm probably not going to adhere to, um, I have an outlet that works a little bit better and can kind of scratch that itch in a way that is 
better for my wallet, but also isn't punitive to myself. Right. This is the time of year, though, Charlotte, when everybody seems to be making a financial goal, don't they? Like a resolution. Mm. Yes. And are we, yes. are we doomed to fail because we keep doing that? We keep setting ourselves up to fail. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think it's important to also, again, this can sound a little woo-woo, but um, re-examine what failure means. So you can try to spend um, one the one thing that's really helpful is to try to frame it in more of a positive way. So for example, um, a couple of years ago, I set myself a goal to spend um, within a certain amount every week and I couldn't spend over that. So it was a limit. But I also told myself that I had to spend that amount of money. So it wasn't just oh. how far can I restrict. It was this is actually the dollar amount that I get to meet. So it wasn't just like, oh, I have to fall under this amount. It was I get to spend this amount per week. And therefore, instead of just turning it into this thing where I was trying to like tighten my belt as much as possible, it was like, oh, no, if I still have, you know, 50, if I if I'm $50 short of my goal, I get to go buy myself a nice dinner. Right. right. So it, it also helps, I think, to look at it in sort of a positive way of like, oh, you get to do this, not you have to do this. I like that. I like that idea. I'm going to try it. Charlotte, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. That's Charlotte Kyles, who's a financial advice columnist for The Cut. This is Mornings with Simi. Today down at 2.30 down in English Bay, an awful lot of people are going to plunge into some very cold water and be really proud of themselves for doing it. It's the polar bear swim. Of course, it is an annual tradition. This is a 104th year here in Vancouver. We wanted to learn more about the history of this event, and boy, is there a lot attached to it. So we thought we would ask Craig Baird, host of the podcast Canadian Canada History X. Well, Craig, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. First of all, let me ask you, would you ever consider doing a polar bear swim? I think I would. I haven't done one yet, but it's definitely on my bucket list to do. Okay. So do you have other goals like that for 2024? This is a good day to talk about that on New Year's Day. So what do you, what do you have to, to set for yourself for 2024? Um, I don't know if I'll do a polar bear dip in 2024, but probably my biggest goal is I would like to do a cross-country trip and explore some of Canada's uh, historical sites coast to coast. Can you? Do you have room in your vehicle that you're doing this in for all the books that you're going to buy at the thrift stores that you're going to go to? Probably not. I might, I might need a U-Haul trailer uh, behind my car. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would sound like an amazing trip. Uh, so thank you for doing this for us today because we are talking about polar bear swims and it's always been a tradition. I've grown up hearing about it. I had no idea that the one in Vancouver, though, had so much history attached to it. What's it, What about it? Yeah, it does have quite a bit of history. So the first polar bear plunge in Canada and possibly the world happened in Vancouver on January 1st, 1920. Now that first year, only 10 people took part in the plunge, but it was founded by Peter Pataget. And he loved to take dips in the cold ocean each day. And he even had an agreement with the Pacific Steamship Company that if he was on an ocean liner working, the ship would have to stop every day just so he could jump into the ocean and take a swim. And from those humble beginnings, the polar bear dip slowly grew. That's so funny. Can you imagine what it would have been like 100 years ago to convince people that this was a good idea? But clearly it worked, right? Because it kind of took off. 
It absolutely did. And yeah, it would have been very strange at the time to convince people to, like, to just go run into the ocean on one of the coldest days of the year. But it slowly grew. And by the 1950s, there were about 200 people taking part. And it's continued to grow over the years to the point that as many as 10,000 people now take part each year, at least in the Vancouver polar bear dip. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. So did it grow? Was it just word of mouth? It just kind of grew organically? I believe so. It kind of just grew over time. You would have people who would do it and they would continue to do it for pretty much the rest of their lives. In fact, one person named Ivy Grandstrom, she did her first polar bear dip in 1928 and she continued to take part until 2004, which was only four months before she died. So she did 76 years in all of the polar bear dips. And for that reason, she was called the queen of the polar bear swims. Okay, that's quite a record to have there for sure. Is there um, is there like other traditions that are associated with it? How does this work? Well, there's various uh, traditions. Like there's some things like uh, the fact that Peter's granddaughter Lisa wore her grandfather's wool swimsuit and did her 59th polar bear swim in 2016. So there are a lot of people who continue to do this, and really. How many people that do it depends greatly on the weather itself. So each year since 1973, the temperature has been about six degrees outside. The coldest was three degrees in 1982 and 1985, and the warmest was nine degrees in 1992. And uh, when the temperature is low, people tend not to uh, take part in it. But when the temperature is warm, they do. So in 2000, you had 2,128 people who actually registered to do the plunge and in 2014 you had 2500 people uh, but in 2020 the 100th anniversary you had 7000 people take part but registration is not enforced so the numbers can vary wildly uh, for qu quite a bit and again it depends a lot on the weather i can imagine okay so do they do this elsewhere where like where else do they have big polar bear swims yeah, they absolutely do. Now, Peter died in 1971, but his polar bear dip really did spread across Canada. And now pretty much every major city in the country does a polar bear dip. I know that they do a polar bear dip in Edmonton. They jump into the North Saskatchewan River. They do it in the Bow River in Calgary. Uh, but in places like Yellowknife, where obviously it's much colder and it's colder for longer, they take a different approach with it. They do the plunge in May, just as the spring thaw is occurring, and they call their polar bear plunge freeze for a reason. <laughs> that's good. I like it. And also that seems safer in yellow, what they're doing in Yellowknife. I was thinking the one in Edmonton, those are brave people to do a polar bear swim in Edmonton. Come on, that's pretty cold. Oh yeah. I mean, this year it's pretty warm, but uh, usually it's quite cold. Uh, you know, it's at least minus 10 to minus 30, but you will get hundred, or, uh, hundreds of people who come out to take these dips. And uh, I don't know if I would do it. I might need a warmer year for my first polar bear dip. I don't know if I can do it in the freezing cold like that. Oh, I think you should do it. And because you are such a lover of history and all of that, Craig, you should come out to Vancouver for your very first polar bear swim, don't you think? I think so, especially because you tend to be warmer and it might be easier to do my first polar bear dip in uh, six degrees rather than minus 20. Yes, I can see that too. Well, something for us to look forward to. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, that is Craig Baird, host of the podcast, Canada History X. That's it for our show today. And hey, don't forget Polar Bear Swim 2.30 today. You can go online, still register. Make sure you register, otherwise you won't get that commemorative certificate to say that you actually did it.